With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I was wrong about everything on this podcast, which my guest today reminded me of. He's super smart. I've been reading about this guy for 20 years. Uh, Bram Cohen. He started BitTorrent, which is used by over 200 million people to share files. More recently, he started a cryptocurrency called Chia. And it's really interesting because it, before we start talking about Chia, we sort of had an overview of all cryptocurrency philosophy in general. And I learned a lot. But, you know, the interesting thing about him, he, he as he says on the podcast, he has a slight case of Asperger's. And he had no qualms about telling me every single time I was wrong. But I appreciate it. I like a guest like that. It allows me to really learn a lot and ask questions, but I was almost intimidated a little because he was he's so smart and so brilliant about all these things. So here's Bram Cohen. Well, technically, yes, but then you have to look into scale. Like the banking industry is much bigger than the Bitcoin industry. Just because everyone's complaining about Bitcoin's energy and... It's not, I realize Chia solves the problem as Bitcoin scales higher, it's going to be a problem, but it's not really a problem right now, but it'll be a problem as Bitcoin scales. Well, no, no, no. Bitcoin's energy usage is pretty much invariant of how much it's actually doing. It's just, it just uses tons of energy just sitting around doing nothing. Is that right? When it's not, when it's not uh, actively engaged in mining, the computers are still using the, the same energy? Well, there, there's always, there's always mining going on. Uh, just there, there's block rewards that are just happening all the time and, and the blockchain is being added to. Uh, and, and there's electricity going into making that happen just 24 hours a day. So Bram Cohen, the, the one and only founder of BitTorrent, you've, you've downloaded your, your porn and your illegal music from him for years. <laughs> and now the creator of perhaps one of the most interesting new cryptocurrencies out there, Chia. We're going to talk about that in a second. But Bram, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, good to be here. You know, um, I know Naval Ravikant is an investor in Chia. He was, mm -hmm. in 2013, early 2013, I didn't understand Bitcoin at all or crypto. Huh? And he flew to New York and literally explained to me for six straight hours the, everything about Bitcoin that he could explain in six hours uh -huh. and convinced me completely. And I became uh -huh. a, a big advocate ever since. But maybe first... You know, BitTorrent. Tell me, tell me about that because that was so controversial and so popular at the time. You started it in two thousand one, or you started working on it then. Tell me about BitTorrent. 
Well, it's actually still very popular, just um, the, the uh, a little more globally than in the United States at this point. But um, yeah, but back then, uh, you, you couldn't get even like video clips over the internet. Like people's internet connections weren't fast enough to stream video, even under ideal conditions. That just wasn't a thing. And it was prohibitively expensive to provide these things anyway. If you actually made like a, a clip that was of interest available on the web, your server would fall over because a whole lot of people would come download it and, and you would just die. So I was like, hey, you've got plenty of upload capacity on all these other machines that are out there. Uh, and this wasn't just an idle thought I had one day. I'd been working at a bunch of startups doing stuff in the general field. There, there was a project called uh, Mojo Nation that was actually uh, basically a cryptocurrency company in uh uh, in the year 2000, um, that uh, failed for a long list of reasons. But I, uh, the, the, in terms of things we'd kind of succeeded at doing at it, thought swarming distribution was really interesting, and I decided to do something that just did swarming distribution. And by swarming distribution, you mean basically the distribution is kind of broken up into chunks on on available space on people's computers, and then there's an algorithm to figure out how to assemble everything back together when you need that file. Yeah, yeah. The, there's um, uh, there's some file that a whole lot of people want, and rather than everybody downloading it from one place, they download uh, pieces of it from the original place and mostly just kind of swap pieces of the file with each other. You know, one way to understand it is most people are familiar with SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and a little bit that is uses similar concepts, that the search for aliens, you, you, if you, you could join it by allowing your computer to use its kind of spare computer cycles to help, you know, decipher what's in outer space. Yeah, well, it's 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 a little subtle because the point here is that you're really using bandwidth is this underutilized resource. And, and bandwidth is something that its behavior is kind of funny. You can't take bandwidth and put it on a shelf and use it later, right? Like it's a, it's a pipe. It has some capacity. If nothing's going through it, you've lost that potential capacity forever. And the marginal cost of actually using the capacity when it's empty is uh, basically nothing. Um, so uh, it's like there's plenty of bandwidth out there, but bandwidth has this problem that it really doesn't act like a commodity at all. You can't preserve it over time. And, and then there's two endpoints to it. The, the receiving end, uh, not all receiving ends want the same data, not all sending and people who might be uploading have the same data. Uh, so if you really want to get it to kind of like act like a commodity, you have to use it in certain specific circumstances. So in a circumstance where a whole lot of people want a very large file all at the same time, then it kind of acts like a commodity and, and then it's sort of fungible. There's a point where some computers or servers are using bandwidth all the time, whereas other computers like my computer at night is not really using bandwidth at all. Oh yeah, the, the vast majority of bandwidth capacity in the world is just not used. It's just, it's, just, it's just like, and I, I I hate to always use analogies, but it's just like Uber. Most car seats are not being used, and Uber was a way to figure out how to use, you know, use and monetize empty car seats that were just lying around. Uh, yeah, well, cars, it's funny because a car needs a driver, right? So, so the humans who could be driving uh, are, you know, people you actually have to pay to do stuff. But cars are definitely severely underutilized. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and so so it, bandwidth is the same thing. And so your your idea with BitTorrent and kind of the idea that grew into cryptocurrencies in general is that uh, computer cycles or bandwidth or whatever could be used 
to support a digital currency decentralized so that there's no one center of control. It's spread out all over millions of computers. Well, uh, so, so BitTorrent's not related to cryptocurrencies at all. Um, right, but for storage, it was it was used as kind of a decentralized storage. No, no, no. It's it's just decentralized distribution. Okay. Like when you want something, you can download it in this way. But it's really about the distribution part of things, not the storage part of things. So, so okay. So explain to me. So if someone uploaded a file to BitTorrent, what would happen? Oh, oh. The, the, uh, BitTorrent's not like a site. BitTorrent's a protocol, right? So there are like like there are websites and they use HTTP. BitTorrent's like HTTP. It's okay. filling in at that kind of level. And so people use the, the like uh, the BitTorrent protocol to create uh, BitTorrent servers and clients, right? So, or BitTorrent yeah, clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just websites that are hosting things using BitTorrent. And then you download from that website. And what would be the benefit of using BitTorrent? Well, to the end user, it's that you can get the file that you're interested in. <laughs> it's, it's, for the person who's making it available, the benefit is that they don't get completely stomped on their, you know, uh, bandwidth bill for doing this. Like, and and why is that? Uh, because they're not doing very much uploading. It's everyone who's downloading it who's uploading to each other. I see. So, so it's not like you're downloading everything from, let's say, Dropbox, which is like one centralized site. It's like uh -huh. I could host files, you could host files. It's spread out. The protocol, yeah. for everybody using the protocol or that client, any mm -hmm. uploading kind of is is kind of randomly placed among clients who are using the protocol. Yeah, well, it's, it's among everyone else who's getting the same thing, right? So if there's only one person who's downloading something, then it, it degrades to be behaving exactly the same way HTTP does. But if there's a lot of people who, who are getting something, then... It, then they're mostly uploading to each other, and there's very little original uploading being done by whoever uh, made it, the file available originally. And then it kind of became notorious in that people were down because of the decentralized mm -hmm. aspect of it. You could never tell who was really hosting what, and so it kind of got notorious for a little while with music. Uh, and no, it's it doesn't have really much of any anonymity properties like, like that people get that impression somehow, but no, it never made that claim that there's any real anonymity going on there. Okay. So, so what was, what was the issue with music? Oh, oh, it's just that, uh, people, uh, there are a lot of like large files, like, uh, well, a lot of nowadays music, the size of music files is just nothing. Uh, but back then they weren't totally trivial and movies certainly, uh, like you couldn't even stream movies. That just your your connection wasn't fast enough, and it was usually pretty impractical to get movies. So people would like download whole movies using BitTorrent, and it would take like a day <laughs> to get the thing, and then they could watch it in high res on their local machine, which was really quite astounding uh, for the time. And uh, uh, upwards of like almost two hundred million people are using BitTorrent right now, or BitTorrent pro BitTorrent's protocol. Uh, well, I don't know how many people are currently using it. I'm not affiliated with the project anymore. I left several years ago. Was it was it a company? Like, did you monetize yeah, it? Yeah, or? there's there's yeah yeah there's BitTorrent Inc. that makes the software available, um, and yeah that that was mostly making money off of ad tech, which I'm very happy to not be living off of anymore. <laughs> and but yeah, the BitTorrent and uTorrent software were provided by it. Um, uh, yeah, and had over a hundred million 
users, uh, monthly active users. Uh, at one point, I don't know what the what number it's at now. When you when you first launched the protocol, uh, did you expect it to get so? And I, and I want to get to the crypto stuff in a, in a little bit, but I'm uh -huh. always fascinated. Like when you first launched the the protocol and you started to see it really rise up exponentially in usage. I mean, I imagine that's among uh, one of the, uh, one of the greatest feelings to see something that you've created being so popularly used. Oh, I, I mean, well, I'm a little autistic. I mean, I, don't know. <laughs> I, I, I do a little more for the intellectual challenge. Uh, it's certainly, it's it's not it's not a great way to get to get groupies. I, I, I can tell you that if you're. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of inventing my own protocol and getting groupies, but now you've talked me out of it. Um, so what what you what you do? So obviously we know what you've done. You started a, 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 the the cryptocurrency Chia. It's it's called by the media the eco friendly cryptocurrency. But mm -hmm. let's let's wind it back a little bit. Tell me about why you're interested in cryptocurrencies. Like I want to get to the fundamental philosophy because you're so smart about this. Oh, I'm actually just really interested in the tech behind them. If I'm going to get on my like high horse and righteously rant about uh, how, how we're going to save the world, there's a, a number of things that are really great about cryptocurrencies. Price movements are not something I get excited about personally. Um, sure. But the things uh, that they have that they're really just seeing the beginnings of fulfilling the promise of is really making markets just a lot more efficient. Uh, there are a lot of things where, uh, in terms of just moving money from point A to point B, that's often just ridiculously expensive to the point where, like, uh, they talk about the the unbanked, even in the United States, uh, of people who rely on cash everywhere. And it's not a mystery why these people are unbanked. The banking industry, uh, we'll talk about it like, oh, those fools, they, they're, they're not using our fabulous services and this is wrong of them. And, and it's like, no, 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 this is, this is bullshit. Like, like what's really going on here is when these people do set up a bank account, uh, sooner or later, they get whacked with so many overdraft fees that it, it just, it, that they just give up on banking completely and and go back to cash because they 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 get less of their money stolen from them <laughs> right. if they're doing things with cash than if they try using banks. So um, something like a third it, of adults have are are considered among the unbanked. Yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous that uh, now uh, cryptocurrencies have issues with doing this that you couldn't have like the cryptocurrencies at least on chain can't support the kind of throughput uh that you need of, of just everyone doing all their transactions all day long you just don't have this capacity because it's a distributed system where you've designed it so that anyone who wants to can run a a, a full node that's auditing the whole entire thing um and of course that that has limits on, on on what capacity it can handle. Uh, so so there are trade offs with what uh, you set the the throughput of the entire system to be there. But it's definitely nowhere near like Visa scale uh, directly uh, on chain. So um, so Bram, I kind of want to um, not not necessarily translate what you're saying to to uh -huh. but but just kind of explain it in a different way and see if you agree. So uh -huh. so the problem is when people are making a, a Bitcoin transaction, the entire blockchain of all other Bitcoin transactions more or less are going around the world all the time, constantly with each transaction. 
Uh, yeah, well, you can run a Bitcoin full node, like just on your computer, and, and it will actually be participating in the network. It will be downloading everything that's happening on Bitcoin. It'll be auditing that Bitcoin, uh, that the current state of Bitcoin really is oh, what you think it is, and, and be really honest to God doing full validation of the entire thing. Um, in order to make that possible, um, the Bitcoin can only support a certain transaction rate or your poor little computer wouldn't be able to pull that off. <laughs> and this seems like a problem in the initial architecture. Like, uh, w wouldn't you think, I mean, I don't know whether it was planned to be this big or, or it was an experiment or just a theoretical idea, but wouldn't someone think that, Hey, if this got as big as the banking industry, how are, how are, how is every computer, how is every full node, as you put it, how's every full node going to carry the entire list of every transaction that's ever happened? I mean, there'll be trillions. Well, well, so so Bitcoin is a secure distributed database, right? Uh, like, in having a secure distributed database at all is is a miracle. Like, it just it's it just doesn't seem like something that's possible to do. Um, and it has this really interesting trick of using Nakamoto consensus to enable that. But uh, when you have a you know, on some level, it's like when you have a miracle, you don't question the miracle, right? Like you just accept the fact that if you're going to have a secure distributed database, it's going to have these limitations on it because the fact that it exists at all is so crazy. <laughs> um, and uh, it, uh, there's been a lot of ridiculous talk in the cryptocurrency world. People who want to prove that they're smart, who want to make a blockchain that they claim does more stuff, it seems almost every single one of them gets this bright idea of like, hey, I know, I'll, I'll just crank up the throughput rate that it claims to support and, and claim that I'm a genius who's figured out how to fix um, Bitcoin's throughput problem and, and claim that I've made, made a better product. And So, so what's one uh, technique for, for speeding up the throughput? Oh, oh I, I mean, there's, it's not a technique. You just increase a number. You just say, here, here's the new throughput. Like the, here's the maximum block size, and I just multiplied it by 10 or whatever. Um, I see. So, and, so it's easier then to say, and if the maximum block, block size is higher, it's easier to send. Uh, yeah, well, it, it just outright allows more transactions to fit in that block size. It's, it's just, here's how many, here's how big the ledger is. Here, so that, that, puts a, a limit on how many things you can put in. The problem is when you cr start cranking that up, it requires more bandwidth to download all of it. It requires more CPU to validate all of it. It, it makes it so that it becomes very hard very rapidly to run a full node. And, and you could maybe, if you're really pushing things, get like an order of magnitude out of this, like a factor of 10. But, but getting a factor of 100 really rapidly makes it so that you have a handful of the add of full nodes in the entire world. Um, and so, like Ethereum, they kept insisting that they were going to do on-chain scaling, yada yada yada, and that plan has just like completely failed. They they cranked up uh, the the numbers as, as much as they possibly uh, could to the point where there's literally only a handful of entities on planet Earth that can actually make new uh, Ethereum blocks right now, and, and it still only has like double the the throughput rate that Bitcoin does. It would have more if it had better engineering. The engineering in Ethereum is worse than in Bitcoin. Let's say as the the transaction universe of Bitcoin expands, which it seems like it's going to, what's uh -huh. what's eventually going to happen to Bitcoin as a currency, given that it has this problem scaling? Uh, well, it's always hard to make uh, predictions, uh, particularly about the future. Um, the uh, the 
there, there is a, a way of increasing what can happen, which is net settlement, right? This is like what banks do, right? It's not like when you buy a candy bar, it's not like that sends a transaction through on Fedwire. Fedwire itself only supports, you know, around 10 transactions per second, thereabouts. Um, it's it, 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 You're doing something through your bank and banks settle with other banks, but they do net settlement. They figure out, like, they take the amount sent that way, the amount that sent this way, sum it all up, and then figure out a net value and just do a transfer of that amount, right? And, and so uh, that can scale up to pretty much anything. And you basically have to build that infrastructure uh, on top of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies generally if you want that kind of uh, throughput rate. Um, and there's other things that can be done that, that are uh, that are very valuable even before you get that, right? Like Fedwire backs everything and it doesn't have a, a great throughput rate. Uh but and it takes a long time for things to go through on it. Uh, but it's still a very valuable database to have um, in the world. And so there are plenty of very high value transactions that can be done on chain, and that's totally reasonable to do as well. And I'll just mention one other basic thing about crypto, which is that everybody knows roughly every actor in the space. Meaning, with with, with the with the U.S. dollar, I don't know all the decisions that are taking place this moment by people I don't know that could affect the value of the dollars in my pocket. So for instance, if the Federal Reserve starts printing a lot of money to support stimulus packages, that that affects the actual value of the dollars in my pocket in ways that I haven't considered. Whereas Bitcoin or crypto in general, part of the philosophy is that uh, you know all the decisions that are being made about the currency you own. Well, there's... Uh, I mean, you know what the emission schedule is, uh, but you don't, like, there's plenty of changes in the supply and demand of Bitcoin, right? Like, there's these wild fluctuations in the actual buying power of Bitcoin. Just right, it's a normal market. Day. Where, where with the dollar, uh, there, there are mechanisms in place to adjust the supply of dollars to keep the buying power of the dollar fairly stable. Uh, so it, it's keeping you from getting much uh, benefit of upside, right? Like, like the dollar uh, never goes up in value. Uh, but it's also protecting you from downside that the dollar rarely just plummets in value. Now, now a lot of people who are cryptocurrency enthusiasts make the claim that uh, the government is just itching to get... Uh, to print lots of dollars and we're going to have hyperinflation any day now. Uh, I think that's a pretty silly claim. Um, yeah, but... no, nobody who understands basic economics <laughs> believes that. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not just an economics thing. It's a, it's a government thing. Like the U.S. government is pretty stable and is intentionally <laughs> keeping the, the prices stable and is doing, uh, and, and is doing a good job of that uh, on purpose. I just want to mention there's huge demand for the dollar around the world. So that that this is one of the things that people don't understand. Deflation is a, a not only a function of prices domestically, but of the demand of the dollar around the world. So if you're trying to, if you have uh, pesos in Argentina and you're feeling insecure about it, which you should be, what what other currency, if you want to get a country's currency, what other currency is there that you would uh, convert to? Yen, probably not. The euro, probably not. Uh, the the U.S. dollar is probably the the safest, at least at the moment. Uh, yeah, well, historically, like decades ago, the U.S. dollar was the only candidate at all. Um, having lots of euros sitting around is not crazy either. I mean, like, particularly yeah. if you're not in this hemisphere. <laughs> and so, okay, so so you were mentioning how crypto, you know, it, it doesn't really do things to manipulate the supply that you're unaware of. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know what it's doing. You know what the emission schedule is uh, of Bitcoin. Uh, but that, that's not the sum total of everything happening in the system. Uh, but you, you, it, it, as part of actually being a secure distributed database, uh, it's paying the miners in its own currency. And if it were possible to cheat, if it were possible for someone to hack it and just print lots of currency, in particular for miners to just print lots of currency, they, they definitely do that. They're not they're not a government. They don't care. They're, <laughs> they're just trying to get as much money as they can. Um, so that's a very important uh, aspect of the system just from its own security uh, properties. So what, what inspired you to uh, say to yourself, hey, I want to create my own cryptocurrency because there's hundreds of cryptocurrencies out there and most are bullshit, but it, it's hard everybody's got a story. So it's hard to identify. Uh, yeah, no, the, the vast, vast majority of cryptocurrencies are just taking the Bitcoin code base or the Ethereum code base and just twiddling a few little things and claiming it's different in some way when it's really not at all. And uh, even among the ones that actually do have a from scratch code base, that the quality of code tends to be <laughs> extremely poor. I, I mean, like most of these things aren't really even cryptocurrencies. They're um, using they're using proof of stake, which just fundamentally doesn't have the same kind of security properties, or they're just outright centralized systems. There there are things that claim to be cryptocurrencies that are just straight up like a, it's a token server. It's a database. would you say like There's Ripple nothing. is an example of that? Oh, oh yeah, yes. Um, so um, what what define proof of stake? Uh, so proof of stake is uh, a database where. Uh, it's a little easier to be more specific in the uh, context of a cryptocurrency. So, so you have a cryptocurrency uh, where the current owners of that currency vote on what's happening. Right? They say, okay, here, here's what's happening in the future. And the idea is that you would need a majority of the current holders of the currency in order to take control of the system. And you hope that that's widely distributed. Now, now this... Uh, this has a, a bunch of fundamental limitations on its security that like if someone does succeed in attacking it, they, they own it forever. Um, if everyone currently running the system today were to just disappear, you couldn't just pick it up and take over and, and have it continue running, which is most definitely a property that Bitcoin does. Um, and, you know, attacking it is straightforward. You just buy more of it. Um, so proof of stake is just fundamentally not the same animal at all, like not even a, a comparable thing in terms of um, security, reliability, or even decentralization. There's lots of reasons to think that the people actually running a proof of stake system have substantial liability uh, for what's going on on it. And, and may eventually, governments may come in and just start telling them they need to censor particular transactions or do particular things. Um, is there it. is there any is there any chance and this is something people are always worried about is there any chance for um uh, what's called a 51% takeover or a 51% hack to to that that bitcoin could be owned 51% by let's say the chinese government this is a popular worry yeah well the um uh, on proof of stake, it appears to be in practice they're like always fifty one percent attacked. That like the the way proof of stake works well is when there's someone who does control it and they kind of act as benevolent dictator and they pretend like it's distributed, but it's actually just run by one entity. Um, and that's actually why it's running pretty well. Um, uh, for Bitcoin, uh, it, it, it's kind of horrifyingly easy. 
maybe that's the wrong word, terrifyingly easy, uh, to uh, 51% attack uh, Bitcoin. It's hard for some random yabo to do it. Uh, but Bitcoin mining is, the vast majority of, of it is done by like less than a dozen entities. And, and if a handful of them wanted to get together and go, okay, we're just going to run the show now, uh, they could do that, at least for a while. Um, they could definitely start orphaning out everyone else's blocks and put everybody else out of business. And that would be very, very bad. They don't do it because it would be so bad for the ecosystem. It would really tank Bitcoin's value. But there's nothing really stopping them from doing it. They could do it very, very easily. Although most of the Bitcoin that will ever exist has already been mined and is in hopefully secure hands. Uh, yes. So uh, Bitcoin is not proof of stake. So... If you own Bitcoin, this does not mean that you are participating in any way, shape, or form with uh, making the blockchain go forward. Um, uh, the Bitcoin mining process, if you look at it from a, an operations standpoint, uh, Bitcoin is like a giant toaster that happens to let transactions through as a side effect. Is this like <laughs> ancillary thing that happens to this whole running a giant toaster process? Right, because it it's a it's both a currency, but also the underlying technology can be used for many things other than being a currency. Um, well, Bitcoin mining burns a lot of electricity, right, uh, and produces very small amounts of data in terms of letting transactions through as a result of that. And actually, the rewards for mining are mostly uh, the fixed block rewards that when people put through make a block, they get a combination of transaction fees and fixed block rewards. And the fixed block rewards are almost always much, much larger uh, than, than the transaction fees are, uh, which is why Bitcoin, you know, keeps chugging along even when it's not really doing much of anything when there's no transactions happening. Yeah, what transactions are happening on Bitcoin? Like, I don't go to the deli and buy a donut with Bitcoin. Um, uh, well, there's a lot of speculative things happening uh, in, in terms of, like, real business transactions. Um, probably a lot of, like, international wire, wire transfers going on. Like, like, that kind of, like international, well, they're not wire transfers, but international transfers happening. Some, you know, remittances, people just sending, you know, money home to their families. Uh, th there are things like that. Um, that that are definitely going on, like local bitcoins has info about um, uh, some stuff that's happening there. Um, it, it's uh, there, there's a lot of there's obviously issues with doing things in Bitcoin uh, because the uh, exchange rate uh, to the dollar and on other just you know regular currencies uh, is so volatile that when people are doing business and they're not just speculating, they don't want to be sitting on a whole bunch of <laughs> whole bunch of these things because they, they could go under from their value dropping too much. And hence the rise of these things called stable coins, right? Which uh, yeah. are, are tied to a, a basket of currency so the price doesn't fluctuate as much. And what, what yeah. do you think of those? Uh, th those are really useful. Like they definitely uh, serve a good purpose and they're... Um, uh, and they're really great for uh, like making real commerce happen. Uh, the Bitcoin core people are very nervous about uh, stable coins because if you had uh, a situation where the amount uh, the amount of value locked into a stable coin was much, much greater than the amount of value of the actual um, cryptocurrency that it was being hosted on, this creates tremendous incentives to it attack the system, <laughs> that it becomes much, much more valuable um, to attack the system than uh, mining on top of it. 
Uh, and this is a worry that, well, the, the Bitcoin core people have, and I don't know if much of anyone else is, wor is worried about this, but it is a concern. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So what led you to say, okay, I want to do something better. I want to, and your the cryptocurrency you made is called Chia. It's funded by all the best investors in the world. I'm probably an investor in it through some VC fund or whatever. So tell me about, tell me about Chia. Like what, what got that started? Uh, well, there, there's a bunch of problems that Bitcoin has. It's very hard to improve on Bitcoin in any meaningful way. Uh, Bitcoin's really at a plateau of functionality and people do all these things. They're like, oh, well, we're going to make it something ASIC resistant and ASIC resistance is uh, a bit of a fool's errand and probably not a good idea anyway. <laughs> what, what's ASIC resistance? Oh, so when you mine Bitcoin, you use uh, ASICs, you use custom hardware that's only really useful for, uh, for mining Bitcoin and nothing else whatsoever. Um, so the idea with ASIC resistance is let's switch to uh, some proof of work algorithm that's best done by like a general purpose CPU or by a GPU and, and just have it be done by that. And th this tends to fail and kind of fail hard that, uh, that usually in the end, someone does make an ASIC and, uh, but they, it costs them a huge R and D cost to do it. So either they keep it completely secret, which seems to happen a fair amount for these things that people are claiming are in fact successfully ASIC resistant. There's lots of reasons to think that people have made ASICs for it and just haven't told anyone because they don't want they, they they don't want a hard fork to happen to make their ASIC stop working. Um, mm. And then when it, it when it does work, it's like you know people are you know using GPUs and stuff, and it uh, it's been messing with GPU markets, but it, it's not really helping anything. It's still very much the case that whenever anyone wants to mine, they buy a bunch of hardware to mine, and then they mine with it, and you really don't want a situation where 
you have only like one or maybe two vendors of ASICs who are who kind of hold the keys to the kingdom uh, because, because other ASICs don't work nearly as well. You want those to be as commodity as possible. And uh, okay, so what other problems did you were you hoping to solve? Um, yeah, so, so with Bitcoin, there's uh, this tremendous waste of electricity being burned. Bitcoin is also not as decentralized as you would like it, it to be. Uh, also, its on-chain programming environment uh, leaves a lot to be desired. That uh, Bitcoin script is very limited, kind of intentionally so. Ethereum can support a lot more, but it does it with kind of a throwing mud at the wall approach. It's like, well, we'll just make it so people can write arbitrary stuff in JavaScript. And that does allow you to write arbitrary stuff. So you can, in principle, write anything. But it's, a, it's not a great environment for doing stuff. People have bricked ludicrous amounts of money uh, with very simple errors uh, because they were trying to do things in solidity. So, so a lot of other of these cryptocurrencies are built on top of Ethereum because Ethereum, as opposed to Bitcoin, is a better, let's call it a programming environment for creating new cryptocurrencies as opposed to Bitcoin. If a cryptocurrency work has the EVM as its underlying thing, then it, in principle, supports more. Uh, so, so people use the EVM or the, the, e, the WASM variant of it that's slightly improved. But uh, the people brag about various cryptocurrencies uh, being based off of basically the EVM uh, as if this is actually a good thing. <laughs> it's like, it does mean that it supports lots of stuff, but it's, you know, it's easy to do because you just rip off what Ethereum already has. But it's really not a good foundation for programmable money. It's not the kind of thing that you want like millions, if not billions of dollars uh, to be controlled by. Well, why is that? Because Ethereum, I mean, how big is the market cap of Ethereum? That's, it's pretty huge right now. Yeah, yeah, it's big. <laughs> I mean, like, um, but there, there's been even like super, uh, like simple things like like uh, parity wallets just got bricked. Just all of them got bricked. All what what do you mean bricked? Like everyone who had their money in those wallets, it just froze, mm -hmm. never to be moved again. It's mm -hmm. it's just gone. Mm -hmm. um, what do people do about that? They get probably upset. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they got upset. Uh, there was talk about Ethereum hard forking to fix it because in the early days of Ethereum, very early days of Ethereum, uh, th there was this project called the DAO, um, and you know some of the Ethereum core devs were involved in that. So that one, uh, that one, just the funds got stolen. Mm. That the 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 contract that did it just had a really a pretty bad failure of just basic programming practices in it uh, that's very, very easy to do in Solidity. And uh, someone figured out that there was this problem and just drained all the funds out of it. And they actually hard forked Ethereum. They like literally, the core dev said, oh, well, no, we're, we're just <laughs> dispensing with this whole idea that Ethereum is a decentralized thing that we don't control. We are in this like extremely ugly way, just went back and changed what the balances were. Uh, so it was like the attack never happened. Um, uh, but that was the only time that that happened. Uh, that, you know, the, the, the parity wallets, people just weren't special enough. They weren't important enough to be worthy of <laughs> this kind of a rescue <laughs> where <laughs> the DAO was. And, and so, okay, so Chia, just what, why did you start Chia then? So obviously there are these problems. What happened next? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I had some pretty good ideas. Uh, so so I, I came up with this plan for doing proofs of space and time. 
which is not just a bunch of science fiction mumbo jumbo I threw together. That that's a real thing. Although it is sort of poetic terms for it. I I like it. It's like it's like proof of quantum mechanics right there. No, no, no. There's no there, there's no quantum mechanics in, in cryptocurrencies. There's no gauge theory in it. I don't know. Eric Weinstein was babbling something, claiming something. I don't know what he was trying to say. Um, but uh, the um, no, no, no. These are all very real, uh, specific things. Uh, I, I actually, to be fair, quantum computation is real and fascinating, but not what people think it is. Um, but um, uh, so the the hero of the show here is proof of space. So the idea is that I was saying how ASIC resistance is a, a bit of a fool's errand. And, and the reason for that is you lose, right? It, like uh, almost any kind of computation that you might do uh, for proof of work, specialized hardware will be able to do it better. There, there's nothing that's just like perfect on a general purpose CPU. Um, uh, there's a loophole here. Oh, and then even if you do it, even if you manage to do that, people are still burning lots of electricity. I mean, people are still getting these chips and, you know, even if you completely succeed in making it and be bog standard commodity hardware, it's still mostly burning of electricity that's going into the mining process. Uh, this is true of anything that a CPU does. There's kind of a loophole, like a really super narrow loophole that you have to use very carefully. Um, uh, which is you can do proofs of space that uh, you have uh, what you can think of it as I'm about to say a lie, but bear with me. Uh, you can think of it as you stored a bunch of bingo cards on your hard drive and you kind of sorted them in advance. And then the blockchain is calling off bingo numbers and then everybody goes and checks to see if they have something close enough, which they can do quickly because they sorted everything ahead of time. And uh, anyone who has something that qualifies goes, bingo, and that makes another block, and the blockchain moves forward. A, a, a proof-of-space algorithm quite that simple has, uh, has a lot of problems to it. There, there's actually like these really algorithmically deep things called uh, Hellman attacks, <laughs> which make it so that you can lie about the amount of space that you have and, and succeed in using more computation uh, in order to e emulate having a whole lot more space than you actually do. So, so let me just try to understand. So, so proof of space, is, so, so proof of, by the way, just for people who don't know is this is how my, it, whether it's proof of work, proof of stake, proof of space, this is how, for instance, new coins for lack of a better word are generated so new blocks proof of work, are, are generated right um, so 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 in bitcoin um if a computer does the work of solving these complicated problems computational problems every time a transaction happens or every time a block is created then they're rewarded with new bitcoins or whatever yeah yeah yes yes that, that that's the, the way it works although you have to be careful with the vernacular when you say it's they when you say they solve complex mathematical problems, that implies things that aren't true. Like they, they, Bitcoin miners solve complex mathematical problems the same way lottery winners predict the future. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a much sillier process than, than it sounds like. If you phrase well, it they, they basically verify that a transaction is valid. And that could be 
take a while because there's been so many transactions and they're building up on all and, the. All, well, they're standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, you can have a backlog of uh, transactions. So each block has a maximum size. They can only accept a certain number of transactions. So, so when you actually do a transaction in Bitcoin, you make a transaction. You, you have a coin that needs like a public key signature to spend it, right? It's, it's out there. It's on the blockchain. And so you make a transaction that, that you sign with your signature that, that spends the old thing, makes the new things, and you publish it. You uh, send it to a full node. Uh, full nodes have what's called the mempool, which is currently outstanding transactions. These are valid transactions that are valid in the current blockchain um, and have not made it into the blockchain yet. So these are sent around between these, and then they find their way to miners, who, uh, when they make a block, they include a set of transactions in this. They take the transactions with the highest fees uh, that are currently in the mempool, and they make a block that pays themselves uh, as much as they can get uh, out of that. There, there's a market in, in transaction fees here. Uh, that if you if there's uh, if there's getting to be a backlog of transactions, uh, there can be transaction fee pressure. Where if you pay a higher fee, your transaction will get through faster than if you uh, want to have a very small fee. So proof of space. What is that? Is that just when the miners um, are are allocated transactions to validate because they have a lot of space available? No, 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 no. Pr proof of space has nothing to do with this process whatsoever. Um, proof of space is entirely what is it that you have to do to show that you put enough blood, sweat, and tears into the system to actually make a block, right? Like, like the whole point of Nakamoto consensus is um, anyone can validate that a block is real. Uh, so in order to make that happen, there has to be something stopping people from just making lots of blocks. And there has to be something stopping someone from introducing a whole lot of full nodes to the network and having them just lie about what the status of the blockchain is. So this thing is um, something that's hard to do, right? It's like, like in the case of Bitcoin, it's a... Um, a uh, a partial hash collision, right? So, so you have these things called secure hashes uh, that you just take a um, a, a string, uh, just any string, in this case a block, that describes a whole bunch of stuff, and you hash it. And that gets you a bunch of bytes. And you say, well, the first whatever number of bytes of that secure hash have to be all zeros in order for this to be a, in order for this to be a valid block. And those are just the rules. Um, and the number of zeros that that has to be varies uh, based on what the current work difficulty is. If there are too many, if blocks are being made too quickly, then the work difficulty goes up. If the blocks are being made too slowly, uh, the work difficulty goes down. But uh, each block represents a certain amount of blood, sweat, and tears having gone into creating it. And the fundamental insight in Bitcoin, the the thing that enables the whole thing is this idea that if you and I get into a discussion of what is the current state of Bitcoin, what is the state of this database, right? We need to work it out amongst ourselves. There's no one out there who's an authority on it. Um, so the trick that we do is we compare the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that went into making this that we can look at the total work difficulty of my version of Bitcoin 
of the history of Bitcoin, and we look at the work difficulty of your version of the history of Bitcoin. And whichever one is greater wins. And that's the rule. And the vast, vast majority of the time, what happens is the only way it's modified is something's just added to the end. There, there aren't reorgs. They, you don't lop stuff off and add new replacements. You just add to the end of it because it would be silly for someone to work on adding old stuff because they wouldn't even, like the blockchain that they'd make if they just added one thing would still weigh less than the honest chain does. Hmm. So proof of space, describe that. I mean, you described it, but I want to understand it a little better. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, Bitcoin uh, works off of uh, these like partial hash collisions. For proof of space, you have these uh, like public keys that you stored. When when there's a uh, challenge that that comes up uh, when when a block is made, right? Uh, there's a question of okay, how, how do we add to this? So, with proof of space and time, for every single public key anyone has ever made that has a certain quality. Uh, it has a certain nearness to the last thing that was done. Like, so you look at its distance from the hash of the previous block, from the challenge that came up, right? And the farther that is, the more iterations of the proof of time that need to be run in order for this to make a block that adds to the blockchain. So uh, what happens is whoever has the smallest one, they make the next block first. And they publish that, and then people start working on that one, uh, on adding to that block. So, uh, how will public keys have a large difference in time from other public keys? It's, it, does it depend on the last time that wallet did a transaction, or no, 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 no? It, it's entirely based off of the um, of the hash of what the last block was. So someone made the previous block. Uh, you hash that, and that gives you a challenge, right? And, and people have these public keys that. Are close that that might be close to it that they pre-sorted. So everyone goes and looks. What, what's the closest thing that I have? And whoever has the closest one, uh, they're going to win uh, because that's going to they're going to be able to make the next block the soonest because there's a proof of time that needs to be done. And whoever has the smallest value here, they're going to have to run their proof of time for the smallest number of iterations. I'm simplifying, by the way, but I'm trying to. <laughs> keep That's this. okay. You're doing a good job. So, yeah, so yeah. Th the idea is then is that uh, it could be much faster than Bitcoin's proof of work because you don't have to kind of go through this process of verifying um, every transaction that ever happened. Uh, no, 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 no. It, it looks uh, by a the way, lot I'm like, wrong about everything. So that's okay. <laughs> it, it looks a lot like Bitcoin in, in many ways here. L like uh, Bitcoin, uh, really, there's this huge disconnect in Bitcoin. Uh, between the process, the consensus algorithm, the process of making blocks, and the on-chain programming environment, and what the transactions that get included actually do, there's a huge disconnect between these two things. Um, mm -hmm. And so, at Chia, we've replaced both of them, but the replacing is different uh, on both ends. Um, so, like Ethereum, that has proof of work that's nearly identical to Bitcoin. So it's very, very similar. It is a different proof-of-work algorithm, but that, that's not super material. Um, but it has a very different on-chain programming environment, uh, where the uh, proof of space and time that Chia uses, that's a different consensus algorithm. Uh, and you could actually ha switch, well, it would be a hard fork, but like Bitcoin could switch to using proofs of space and time without changing its on-chain programming environment. Th these are two orthogonal concepts. Okay, so so with Chia, what are the what would you say are the benefits? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, so, so uh, with Chia, when you're doing proofs of space, which we have up and running now, woohoo, um, it's, uh, it, it's much more distributed. There's a lot more entities that are participating here um, because, well, there's just a lot of storage space sitting around. Now, at the moment, uh, our, our initial coin price was a lot higher than we expected. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, caused this like mad rush of people buying new hard drives uh, to farm off of them, uh, which has caused our net space to go up very, very quickly, which is, well, has made it a lot less profitable to farm Chia. Um, uh, Chia is currently over 10 exabytes of space uh, that, that's wow. dedicated to it. Yeah, and it's been going up at around one exabyte uh, per day. Uh, and and again, why would someone? Uh, here's what I'm always curious about with these crypto, mm -hmm. with all these cryptos, whether they're valid or not valid. Like, let, but let's just assume we're talking about the legit ones. Who is who is using, or who are using these uh, these these currencies right now? Like, like like Chia, you know, sounds similar a little bit to Filecoin, where there's the uh, you know the kind of decentralized storage network. And uh, who, uh, well, who, we don't do storage though. We don't have a storage service attached to it, right? But I'm just thinking like it's a it's a it's a coin that is fixing some or solving some problems in the entire e ecosystem of cryptocurrencies. And I can yeah. never figure out who are the end users of any of these. Like, who's the end user right now of, of Chia? I mean, Chia is just starting, so maybe there's yeah. none yet. But yeah, right. Right now, we have a big you know farming community <laughs> uh, um, right uh so people are happy with that uh but in terms of like farming of, food that, that that nobody's eating yet <laughs> yeah um uh there i think there's kind of two different sets of functionality that people are doing in cryptocurrencies uh today um there's kind of like the Bitcoin functionality and the, the Ethereum functionality, right? So, so Bitcoin is very much focused on just being simple money, right? Like being something where people can sit on it and have their money and use it to transfer money between different places and do basic custody arrangements and do a good job of that. Um, and people are doing that. Uh, people are also doing um, stable coins, which also do that as well and have a bunch of advantages obviously because they don't have the volatility uh, in, in the value with them. Uh, you, clearly people are using stable coins like Tether has like is it like 50 billion real dollars that have been <laughs> put down on Tether. Um, but, but, but that's because other cryptocurrencies to sort of stabilize the profits that, they, that investors have made have moved things from like let's say Bitcoin to Tether but there still might not be any actual transactions happening other than Bitcoin moving to Tether? Um, I mean, it, uh, yeah, it could be a bunch of that is that people have made profits in Bitcoin and want to move them to something else. Uh, but uh, fair point. But uh, there do seem to be a, a decent amount of real, um, not big in the grand scheme, not big compared to the you know what the finance industry does because they just, literally run the world. Um, but there is a, a fair amount of just commerce happening um, uh, using cryptocurrencies, but not. Uh, but it's things where like you have places like Nigeria and Venezuela and people are moving funds around there. And then, of course, there's this question of what do you consider criminal activity, right? It's like <laughs> evading the capital controls in Venezuela, <laughs> criminal activity, or just people trying to live their lives, right? Like... like um, 
but definitely it could be a lot more. Uh, it's not used nearly as much as people who are into cryptocurrencies would really like that uh, to be happening. Um, and the, the other type of functionality that's happening is kind of this DeFi stuff that, that Ethereum things are more on. Um, and well, definitely on both Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's just a lot of speculation. A lot of people just <laughs> buying right. stuff because it's going up, right? Um, and a lot of the, these DeFi tokens, like let's say Uni, Uniswap, are are made to sort of arbitrage slight differences, say, or, or allow transactions between Bitcoin and Ethereum and other currencies. But still, I'm always trying to figure out what's the what's an ultimate consumer end user. And like you say, it's all very, a lot of it's very speculative right now. Um, yeah, well, the, so, so Uniswap is much more real than a lot of these projects are. The, the, there are a lot of projects that are just like, here, well, we have this, we made this token whose value only ever goes up, <laughs> right? like, which is a very silly claim to make. Um, uh, but Uniswap is about um providing liquidity uh in trading between these things now this is a little bit meta here <laughs> right um but i think uh there's very very real things to be done around tokenizing things around tokenizing well like stocks around tokenizing like carbon credits around tokenizing well dollars um uh and setting up very liquid markets uh, between them th that you can, in principle, have a, a market that's much more efficient um, than the ones that Wall Street usually sets up that's based off of cryptocurrencies. Right. And so the point of when you say tokenizing, the point of that is, let's say I wanted to tokenize my future earnings. So, so let's say I just graduated college and I have all this student loan debt, and I want to say I want to tokenize 10% of my future earnings for the next 10 years so I can raise money now to start paying down my student loan debt. This is just hypothetically. I'm not doing this, but it's just an example of tokenizing. And and, and the reason that it's great to, to use blockchain-type technology, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or something else, is that there's a lot of the legal stuff are sort of taken care of for you inside the software you don't need like a team of lawyers and accountants to and oh, an exchange yeah. to figure this out oh whoa <laughs> well <laughs> I, I i wouldn't make that claim uh th there are things that cryptocurrency does and things that it doesn't right so uh, one thing that cryptocurrency definitely does is makes it so you can move funds from point a to point b and they've definitely gotten there without a trusted intermediary right what it does not do is allow you to do lending without having to take into account creditworthiness. That that when people make that claim, they're just being ridiculous. That, that that's not a thing. Um, lending in cryptocurrency is just normal lending, and you know, cryptocurrencies don't make it so that you can't have the long arm on the law uh, come down on you for doing something. Right? Like you are still subject to the laws of whatever jurisdiction that you're in. Right, but if the law itself can be encoded in the the blockchain, there's no fraudulent behavior. The fraudulent behavior, let's say, is limited. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very excited about the things that blockchains really can do and can do very well. Right, so so moving funds from point A to point B, they can do very well. But also um, exchange, they can between tokenized assets, they can do very well as well. So functionality that we have in Shia in our on-chain programming environment, which other things don't have is we have just automatic interchange between everything tokenized. 
So if there's any two things that are tokenized by any two entities, two different people just went and made colored coins, tokenizing totally unrelated things. And I want to trade some of one for some of the other, right? I, I can make an offer. I can make a partial transaction that burns a bunch of colored coin A and prints a bunch of colored coin B. Now, this is not a valid transaction because you can't just print colored coin B. That's not allowed, right? But what I can do is I can take this partial transaction and I can email it to someone, I can send it to an exchange, I can post it on Reddit, I, I can do whatever with it. And then somebody out there, if they come across this thing and they want to take the other side of it, they can... They, they can just go ahead and do that. They can make their own partial transaction that prints a balancing amount of colored coin A and burns a balancing amount of colored coin B and combines these together. And this is now a valid transaction which will actually go through on the blockchain. And in fact, an exchange can market make between a bunch of these things and you know take some of the spread and stuff uh, in normal things that exchanges do kind of ways. Uh, without having to have a trusted exchange, you're you're only trusting the exchange to not be, you know, pocketing too much of the spread here. You're not just trusting them to not just be like Mott Cox and make out off with all your money. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable. And it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So this is great. So you're, what you're doing is there's a transaction that requires liquidity from two coins. The liquidity mm -hmm. might be not be there, but what you're doing is creating the opportunity for the liquidity to exist at some point. It, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's As opposed to uh, a Uniswap, for instance, the liquidity happens right then, and people get paid to provide liquidity. So Uniswap acts as a market maker. Well, like, uh, like it's an algorithmic So it needs liquidity market. on hand. 
Yeah, it always yeah. has liquidity there. So Uniswap does two things, right? It, it acts as a liquidity provider and it acts as a price oracle. And uh, it 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 totally does exactly what it claims as a liquidity provider. Uh, like whether this is a good idea or not, interesting question. Uh, it's definitely been making profits uh, off of uh, its trading strategy, which is just simple rebalancing. But if, if Chia had all the liquidity available all the time, it would act like Uniswap, basically. Uh, no, no, no. You you could have like Chia Swap. You could have like a Uniswap on Chia that, that's behaving very similarly. That 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 that's helpful, right? Uh, it, it's potentially good to have a an algorithmic liquidity provider that's always available at all times. That that's an extra thing on top of this first layer of things, which is you have uh, bids and S make made, and then there's market making and them and such. Um, but uh, the the Chia swap is, is just something that will sometimes take the other side of offers that you make. Like, so, right. And what if nobody ever provides the liquidity on the other side? Oh, well, if no one wants to take your offer, it doesn't go through, right? Like, like maybe, okay. maybe you want an exchange rate that's just, you're asking for too much, and so it's not going to go. Poten through. Potentially, you could even exchange NFTs using Chia Swap, is what you're saying. Oh yeah, yeah, that 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 works as well. You you could uh, make an NFT on Chia, and then make an offer to sell it, and someone could just take your offer and take control of the NFT without having to have an exchange in the middle. That you don't need a trusted party to do the escrow. I see. So so the benefit of Chia is that I could propose a transaction and just set it out there on the network. And then yeah. see if, like, for instance, if I wanted to tokenize, I'm just using, I'm sticking with this student loan example. If I want to yeah. tokenize my future earnings, I could set it up in some way, throw it out on Chia and see if someone takes the other side. Uh, yeah. So, so the problem with tokenizing your future earnings is people have to trust you to actually pay out of your future earnings in exchange for these tokens. Uh, right. So that's where a, a lawyer is required because I'd have to basically define what my earnings are and and make sure it all goes through like an escrow first that that deposit yeah, and, deposits and, in the token yeah and and just your credit worthiness right like you might just try and disappear like move to another country and go nope i'm right. just going <laughs> right just so it's, the, it's, the a, it's, a, it's the problems of any kind of credit based transaction yeah yeah exactly but it, but it's it creative in the sense that a, a bank will not loan money off of a college student's future earnings but it's it's a more speculative. A lot of tokenization is about speculation. So yeah, when they created the, the much, Bowie bonds, it makes it much easier to provide liquidity in these things. That that anyone who really wants to, it, it, once someone has tokenized something, right? So someone is doing the tokenizing, right? And, and the, there are problems of trust and redemption and whatever for them. But once someone has done some tokenizing, the actual market for exchanging these things can be much much more liquid. Right. And now exchanges between tokens are actual exchanges. They're centralized uh, and, you know, like a Coinbase is a no, a, a place like oh, Coinbase oh, today. or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. today yeah. they're very centralized and they're like rely a huge amount on trusting the exchanges uh, who are doing them. Right. And you're saying, and Chia is like a, is one of these DeFi tokens that basically is like a meta exchange. It's decentralized, but it's also a meta exchange in the sense that. It, it allows you to create tokens that aren't that there, there's not necessarily liquidity for. It's a platform for on-chain programming that's much just much more suitable for the kinds of things you really want to do uh, uh, with uh, smart money. So, like colored coins aren't directly programmed into 
uh, chia lisp. There's no there's no concept of this is a uh, a colored coin in the uh, chia spec, but it has the tools where you can build such things on top of it. So what what are some like real life examples that you could see potentially being uh, the chia the chia protocol or tokens being very useful for? Well, there's really basic kind of meat and potatoes things that if you just want to do like custody, right? Like, like when your money is in the bank, the bank is providing security features for this. Like if you try and withdraw your money, it slows it down and verifies it's you and it does things like that. Now they do this in a way that's not very, um, that you have no control over and that's not very transparent at all. They don't really make clear what their policies are. And like when a check clears, it doesn't actually clear when you think it clears. <laughs> like there's a longer period of time where the yeah, money Yeah, it always stresses me out. Way. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. always stresses me out. That like if you send a wire, there's kind of mm -hmm. an, a period where the money is nowhere. <laughs> and that always yeah. stresses me out. No, and even when you deposit a check, there's a period where it looks like you have the money, but you don't actually. That right. You can go ahead and spend it, but if they decide that it's a bounce check, they'll just come and take it back from you retroactively. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, so uh, like currently today, uh, cryptocurrencies are worse for this than banks are uh, in terms of the custody that they allow you to do for yourself. Um, However, uh, they could actually be much, much better. So there's really simple things like having a rate-limited wallet, right? So you want to have a wallet where uh, it can only spend money at a certain rate. And if uh, you get hacked, if someone takes control of it, uh, you can go, oh, no, I've been hacked. And you can go dig up your other key that you keep in your safe deposit box that you use to recover your funds um, if ever you get hacked, right? Uh, and then you're only out the amount that the that the attacker was able to drain from uh, your wallet uh, before you realized that you'd been hacked. And yeah. you're saying so that Chia could make a rate limited uh, a rate uh, limited wallet? wallet. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have. Okay. What 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 other what other things can you do? I mean, uh, what, well, what, you, what, you, I, I'm just thinking of like real world uses. Like what what are two tokens you can see being traded or transacted with on? Oh, oh, well, and you could do NFTs. Um, uh, in terms of actual tokens, uh, you know, the, all the, a lot of the stuff you really want to do uh, are things where there are legal issues around it, right? So like stocks, right? Like you really want to trade stocks. Um, tokenizing stocks is a lot of regulations uh, around doing that. Uh, but uh, possibly like carbon credits is something I'm pretty excited about. Uh, that has but there's already mechanisms for trading carbon credits. Like, why would I want to use anything else oh, okay, other than the current mechanisms? Just so much better. <laughs> it's decentralized, but like again, there's very formal exchanges, you know, uh, mired in regulation that that do this. Yeah, yeah. So, so this this uh, cuts out most of the crap. This makes it so anyone who's tokenizing carbon credits can, can just allow very liquid exchange of them to happen without being bought into any one particular exchange doing the work. So, so, and again, I'm trying to understand the, the, the reasoning for tokenizing. So let's say Exxon mm -hmm. has some carbon credits. Mm -hmm. I would tokenize them so that I can trade them for Chevron's, uh, carbon credits and it looks the same. It doesn't need oh, like oh, that's an, not, an extra, uh, that that's not, um, exactly how carbon credits work. Uh, you, you have like carbon credits like in the United States in this year or something like that. That that 
and those are all pretty much the same thing. And, and those can be traded uh, on exchanges and, and have price discovery on those. Uh, but there are like a lot of different ones of these that happen like internationally and, and you can trade between them, but that, that they have to be redeemed. So, so what does the tokenizing do? Uh, the, the tokenizing allows very efficient price discovery uh, and allows very efficient interchange of them. It, it means that you, you, you're not, uh, whoever's issuing these things isn't like blessing one particular um, exchange uh, to be the ones who you know, get to take a, you know, a cut every time someone, every time these change hands and so, someone uh, does offers with them. That the, And it also means that the thing that they're tokenizing can be directly interchanged with everything else. That you don't have to have pairings between these things uh, that, that are spe set up specifically. For I see. So if there's carbon credits in Europe and carbon credits in the U.S., Mm -hmm. They might not be easily tradable unless through an exchange. And then mm -hmm. there's all sorts of fees. There's all sorts of mm -hmm. ways, uh, w you know, you could only, I could only trade the European carb carbon credits with the US one, say on a particular exchange. I might not be able to trade the Nigerian carbon credits with yeah. the US carbon credits. And you're saying yeah. with Chia, you can kind of, as if you transform these carbon credits into tokens, then they all can be traded and there's price discovery and so on. And the yeah. information, this is Nigerian, this is European, this is US, that's all there. And uh, everybody can make decisions on their own rather than relying on a specific exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, it, 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 if you want liquidity in markets, you want everything to be dumped into one big pool and everyone to be able to interact as directly as possible uh, with everyone else as you can get. So this could be incredibly useful, and and I hate to say it, but like in games, for instance. So if uh -huh. if 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 computer game assets, like people buy, you know, things and in, in virtual money is very useful in particular computer games, but they're not in, easily interchangeable. I can't uh, create you know virtual money on one game and trade it with virtual money on another game. But with if I tokenize them or make NFTs of them. Then you yeah. could do it on Chia. Well, no, no, that's actually a great idea that hadn't occurred to me before. That like game companies can tokenize their virtual currencies. Yeah, th th that and that is... makes the games more uh, accessible to people who haven't tried them yet, but have a lot of virtual money and time invested in another game. Yeah, well, it, it, I mean, it's, it's some, to some extent, they might not want to do it because they don't like making it possible to uh, do uh, gold farming within the game. <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, it, it makes it so that like, like a game then doesn't have to set up its own marketplaces to make value in in their own virtual goods. They just make NFTs or, or out of it. Or two games, or, yeah, Two games don't have to have a deal with each other. They could just throw right. up their, you know, you, if you're a gamer, you could just throw up your, I don't know, Grand Theft Auto virtual money on Chia and see if yeah. someone with or, or, uh, or Call even of Duty multiple, tokens. Yeah, or even multiple games could use the same virtual currency uh, between them. Right. The, the, it could use the same tokenization. Yeah, no, th that, that's a great idea. <laughs> well, what are what are some other ones that are, are uh, real customer uses? I know, um, I know I'm asking this a lot, but I'm just trying to think of, uh, of, yeah. Of stuff. Well, I mean, there's NFTs, which are <laughs> interesting, but we definitely support NFTs really well. Uh, there's a, a lot of stuff around just like different types of custody arrangements, right? So there's like uh, distributed identities. So uh, the simplest use of distributed identities is if like um, uh, you want to be able to say, okay, I'm trusting these people to recover 
my access to my account if I lose it. If either I lose all of my access uh, access controls or I die or whatever, th this set of people are able to regain access to my stuff. Um, so uh, there, there are things built to do this now. They're generally built on uh, making partials of your keys and sending them to your trusted people uh, so that th those can be used to reconstruct your original keys. This has a problem that if these trusted individuals uh, that you're doing this with themselves lose access to everything, if they have to go through a recovery process, they won't afterwards be able to participate in your recovery process. Uh, so distributed identities uh, can be used to uh, get around this. So, so we have DIDs that have recovery which uh, where the recovery is defined with other DIDs, so that even if they've gone through a recovery process, they can still participate in your recovery process. So, uh, why? So, why would I use Chia for that? Like, why? Why? What am I trading? For oh, that? oh th this feature just isn't supported by other things. <laughs> I like, think it's not. <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to think of the cases where people create tokenize something, but then trade it for other different tokens or similar tokens. Oh, okay, let, let me try to give it yeah, let me try to give another yeah. example like the game one. Let's say I want to take money out of my home without without uh selling it. So one mm -hmm. way to do it is to take out a mortgage. But what yeah. if I say I'm going to take 10% of my home and I'm going to tokenize it and I'm going to trade that token for something. <laughs> oh, that, and somebody gonna, else <laughs> That's that's definitely going to run into a lot of legal issues, right? Like like a blockchain isn't really helping you with, with the issues that No, you the blockchain's not helping me, but the tokenization is because presumably the tokenization will wrap around all the legal work done to do that and mm -hmm. The, the legal work's done once to create the process of tokenization, and then I could start trading with other people. Oh, I, let's say I think owning a house in Denver, 10% of a mm -hmm. house in Denver helps me diversify the um, my house in, in wherever. So, mm -hmm. and then I could use Chia as a marketplace for trading these sort of real estate tokens. Yeah, yeah, it could. I think, I think that those markets, uh, yeah, it, yeah, the, the, this really allows a lot of lesser tokenizations to happen, right? Like things that aren't happening today, just not not because it necessarily is a bad idea to do the tokenization, but because the token's access to markets is going to be limited afterwards. Uh, it can be done much, much better if you tokenize on-chain and make use of these distributed exchange features that Chia has. Um, also, Chia, Chia could show you which types of tokens are being most traded, and maybe that could create you know more interest in those markets, for instance. Maybe there, there's a lot of like oh, there's a lot of wash trading that goes on in cryptocurrencies, like because um, uh, you know sometimes cryptocurrencies want to make it look like they're actually being used for something even though they're not. So they just make a bunch of transactions that are just moving coins in circles <laughs> on their blockchain <laughs> just what, to make it what, look like there's high volume. <laughs> I, I'm just curious, which cryptos do that? I, I I don't know. It's hard to tell because you know like, uh, there there are things online that. Um, there are sites that make claims that they have figured out amounts of wash trades that are happening to inflate volumes on various things. But it appears to be fairly endemic that like definitely a lot of the lesser exchanges just outright lie about the the volume of trading that they're doing. And like, well, will Chia be, hmm? well, yeah. be able to be used as a currency? Like, will, be I, be, will I be able to spend Chia to buy a donut? Uh, well... Uh, that that's a long ways off, right? Because that's a really low value transaction, 
right? Um, right. So, so that that has issues around. Um, you want that to happen with very low latency, and you need a very low transaction fee in order for that to happen. Now, with Chia today, as of this exact minute, <laughs> it would be completely reasonable to like buy your dinner uh, with Chia. That that it only takes like a minute for the transaction to get any acknowledgement of going through, and after ten minutes, it's really, really buried very well, um, which is fine for paying for your dinner, right? Because you're still sitting there at the table. Um, however, th this it doesn't scale enough for that to happen. This is only because there's so little demand uh, for uh, transactions in, in Chia right now. So, so if you actually, if a chain of restaurants started doing this, maybe one chain could get away with it. But as soon as it started being really used at scale, um, the transaction fees would go up because the blockchain was just full. And that this is how it responds uh, when the blockchain is full is it just starts charging more and more for transaction fees. Um, and what, one big difference between Chia and other DeFi tokens like Uniswap, it sounds like like Uniswap has specific pairs. Like I could trade Bitcoin for Ethereum or Bitcoin for stable coins. Chia allows for any two tokens to be transacted. Uh, so Uniswap acts as a... <laughs> Uh, I'm a bit fumbling over semantics of whether Uniswap is a is a cryptocurrency here. Um, Uniswap has a uh, is makes a pairing between two uh, cryptocurrencies and acts both as a way of interchanging between them and as a liquidity provider uh, between them. And if you just use it to transfer between the two, it it will actually uh, charge you for that. Sometimes people try and cheat and just use it as a price oracle. I mean, even if you're trading through it, it does kind of act as a price oracle. There's a problem with that, which is uh, people can um, manipulate it, right? And, and control what price it says. And so they make Uniswap say a price that's just very wrong and then do some other transaction <laughs> that's relying on that price and make a whole bunch of money off of it because the amount that they spent manipulating Uniswap was much, much less than the amount that they made uh, on this other thing. Uh, and then correct me if I'm wrong, which I'm usually wrong here, but uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, aren't there other tokens then that take advantage of the arbitrage created by a, a Uniswap-type protocol? I mean, it, um, well, there, there are a bunch of Uniswap-type things uh, that, that exist. Um, the uh, There's this really interesting thing that if you're going to make ChiaSwap, uh, I've been doing a whole bunch of thinking about this, um, because... Uh, exchange is built into Chia, right? Like, you don't really need uh, this special thing to just transfer from one, uh, to, to tr mostly trustlessly uh, transfer the uh, exchange between different uh, coin types. Um, the, uh, there, there's a question of, like, what is Chia Swap there to do? And the answer is to act as a liquidity provider. That that is definitely something that still is very much a thing. Um, the a thing that can be done a lot better uh, with it is in Chia. Um, uh, colored coins are so lightweight that if you were to make a Chia Swap pairing, the right way to do it actually is to make it so that instead of like being a big um, thing that's holding onto a lot of state to remember what everyone's balances are that have been put deposits into this thing. Um, the instead, it um, it has its own internal use colored coin. It has its own token, 
that you can then ex trade that as well, uh, actually. So like the the Chia swap becomes this thing where it itself is sitting on like a certain amount of colored coin A, a certain amount of colored coin B, and then it just remembers how much of its own internal use token it's issued. Um, and then when something is done with it, there's the old values of these three things, and then there's the new values of these three things. And its its business logic is basically it's okay with this or it's not. And, and it has this special property that unlike everybody else, the one uh, singleton that actually is the thing is able to print its internal use uh, colored coin. Um, so if you just go and like deposit a, a bunch of... Um, uh, of colored coin A into it in exchange for its internal use token, it it might be okay with with that if you ask it for the right amount, uh, and, and this can then go through. Um, th this actually potentially creates hilarious things because it has its own internal use colored coin. This is like a full, fully functioning colored coin that you can have like real custody arrangements in, and you could even do like a pairing on that with something else. <laughs> it just seems ridiculous, uh, but could definitely be done. So right now, uh, it's it's got like about a, a four hundred million dollar market cap. The Chia network of coins, I believe. Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's not counting our pre farm. Um, so if you count our pre farm, it's it's like over ten billion. Uh, wow. So and I think people think of these market caps in terms of the way they think of market caps of companies, but it's not like that at all. So maybe. Like how how high could that go? Oh, I I don't know. I don't I don't know what happens with prices. I have no control over prices. <laughs> the price is higher than I anticipated it being, and it, it, like the, the, our initial coin price, like came out higher than I thought it might be, uh, which has caused our net space to explode just crazy fast because. You know, when we first launched, you could make like a multiple on your money in less than a month just by farming. So <laughs> markets don't like those kinds of opportunities being available <laughs> and make them right. go away well, really, really fast. Um, I think I think so, about I think about Filecoin, which which in a three week period went from like I don't know ten to two hundred, and now it's heading back to ten. And I still can't figure out a single end user of Filecoin. Oh, I. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to like make like so, so because there's this disconnect between the consensus algorithm and the on-chain programming environment. I, I'm trying to do as good of a job as I can with both of these, <laughs> and uh, so uh, we have what I believe is a very you know secure consensus algorithm. Uh, people are definitely very excited about farming <laughs> for it. Um, uh, because NetSpace is going up so fast, what happened was we there's many more reward events in uh, Chia than there are in Bitcoin, right? So, so in Chia, there's like almost 5,000 reward events per day. So if you're uh, one five thousandth of the total NetSpace, you get about a reward per day. Sometimes you get lucky and get more than one. Sometimes you get unlucky and don't get anything. But it's on average one. Uh, per day, right? Which is a pretty reasonable level of smoothing. And I figured we would be fine for a while off of this because you don't have to be very big to be one five thousandth of the network, which was true when the network launched and there were uh, 
and there was 100 petabytes of net space on it. But it's not true anymore. We're now <laughs> over 100 times that big, and it's only two months later. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, uh, because of that, your average time to win as a small-time farmer is very high. Now, now this might... Um, uh, now, this is balanced out by the fact that if you do win, you get like you know over a thousand bucks. You get two chia, um, which in many cases is how, a lot more. How than How can the someone farm chia? How, how do you uh, farm chia? Oh, uh, you, you you run our software. You go to chia.net, download the software, and you run it, and and then you just make plots, um, and then you farm off of those plots. And it can be as simple as just uh, well, if you have a bunch of storage just sitting around that you're not using, you plug it into your computer and make it start plotting and you're good to go. And people as, are definitely as someone doing tokenized, that. As someone tokenized farming and mining, so I buy like farm coin and I'm, I'm now farming from like a hundred different cryptos. Oh, oh man. And so, so like right now, people are breathing down my neck. Like my... Uh, my Twitter reactions are all when pool all day. Like if someone sends me like a question in a foreign language, I, I don't even need to use translate. I know what they're asking. They're asking, when are we going to have pools in Chia? Right? Like that's the question everybody has because everybody uh, who's farming wants instead of winning like, you know, 2000 bucks once a year, they want to, you know, win much steadier things every day. Right. Um, and, and so we are scrambling right now <laughs> to get this out. We thought we would have a lot more time until it mattered but we're scrambling to get this out as quickly as we possibly can and we're building a really good uh pooling protocol where you'll actually be able to jump between pools uh so that if a pool is you know ha has bad terms or if they're just outright stiffing you uh, worst you do is you just switch to another pool but what i'm wondering is can you decentralize across or decentralize might be the wrong word but can you go across all the cryptos so that there's a pool uh, of all cryptos, and then they're exchanged to a, a common uh, co a coin or whatever through Chia. There are mining companies which are public. So it would be pretty funny if a mining company tokenized their stock <laughs> and put it yeah. like, on the cryptocurrency that we're mining or like a farming or, or, entity. Or, or, you, or you be public, like by tokenizing across all these crypto pools, across different coins, Chia could do it. You don't, I don't need to go through an exchange. I can go through Chia. Uh, well, so Chia, the company, right? So we're sitting on a whole bunch of uh, Chia ourselves that we're just sitting on. We're just not doing anything with it. We're just sitting on it. Um, the, uh, that at some point in the future, that will be a source of value. That, that's our claim to it's the company actually being worth something, which enables us to actually do all this software development and build this stuff. Um, uh, we as a company are just going to do a normal IPO at some point is the plan <laughs> when we can. It's, we will it, do that. It's, it's so funny that you'll resort to like the normal financial exchange oh no no it's not resorting i took a lot of like arrows in the back for doing this because like a lot of cryptocurrency investors they just want to do pump and dumps right they're mm -hmm. like give me tokens i want tokens what was the equity this is like a weird obscure thing you're, you're a fucking criminal <laughs> wanting to do this strange thing just give us tokens because we don't trust you and, and i mean they're 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 full of shit they, they just want to dump that's why they want tokens they they they, they, mm -hmm. they want like this is really all about you know the the thing that all the laws around equities were written around if you're like um uh, well, in some sense, issuing equities is a kind of tokenization. It's not a cryptocurrency, but it's you know same kind of a thing. Um, 
And if you're doing this, uh, you should be building value to do it, not just like, you know, pumping up the value of something and dumping it as quickly as you can and getting out of it, right? The idea here is to protect consumers uh, from shady uh, actors, right? There is real value in people being able to invest in things, but this needs to be done in a way where... uh, uh, where where the people who are accepting the investment money uh, are mostly people who are actually building stuff and generating returns with it, not mostly scam artists who are just trying to collect everyone's money and run. So, so why do you think um, Elon Musk said this thing about Bitcoin that basically started kind of caving in Bitcoin that you know it had too much energy usage, so they're going to stop uh, accepting oh, I mean, payment that's, for That's Texas. just a real thing. That, that, I mean, it's just mm-hmm. gross the amount of pollution generated by Bitcoin. Like that's if you could get the same security without all the pollution, that sounds like a really good idea. Um, do you think it's it hard means to he, do? Huh? Do you think it means he disbel- He's not believing anymore in, as much in Bitcoin because you know he he has put some well, of Tesla's I, cash I, reserves into I Bitcoin. Don't, I don't. I have no idea what Elon actually thinks about anything. But <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> how how different Tesla stock and Doge are in his mind. I really have no idea. But um, <laughs> the um, uh, uh, but it's weird because like he said, well, we won't accept Bitcoin for Teslas anymore. But he didn't like like Tesla hasn't sold all their Bitcoin. So like. That that seems kind of strange, right? Like, if you really are that yeah. concerned about the energy usage of Bitcoin, you should um, uh, sell all the Bitcoin you have, which will increase the supply of Bitcoin, which will lower its price, which will lower the value of the the mining incentives. It will lower the value of these uh, rewards that miners are getting, which will cause them to expend less resources pursuing those rewards, which will result in less pollution going into the air. Uh, so it's kind of strange that he made a big hullabaloo about that, but didn't actually just sell off Tesla's Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, so I always wonder about motivations and reasons, but I guess, like you said, you can't really figure out the motivations yeah, in this case. What, what Elon's doing cases. with Doge is like, I don't know what's going on here. Doge is not different from Bitcoin in any way, shape, or form as far as these issues are concerned. <laughs> well, and Doge also, I mean, it is acknowledged was just a joke from the beginning. Yeah, well, as of a few months ago, as of a few months ago, there were only a handful of Doge full nodes in the world. Like there was one dude who was keeping the chain alive. And now it's now it's like all every place. It's gone from like what, like a penny to sixty cents or something. Doge's price being this high is not a healthy thing, and it's not good for cryptocurrencies actually bringing value into the world for that to be like the beachhead that everyone sees of what's going on. I agree. Well, Bram, it sounds like what you're doing is healthy for the cryptocurrency environment. I particularly look forward to tokenizing all my children's future earnings and then selling them to, uh, you know, speculators and seeing seeing what they think. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. I think that 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 would run you into some legal problems. It's hard enough. I'm gonna to, to- I'm gonna tokenize everything in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 hard to tokenize your own future earnings, and it's hard to sell your children. So so doing them both together might be especially difficult. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'll have to think of another another idea. But uh, Bram, I've been reading about you and following your career for so long. It was such a pleasure to to talk to you. Thank you for for coming on the podcast. And yeah, thanks. This was fun. Yeah, good luck with Chia, and um, you know, hopefully, we'll we'll have you on again after after the IPO and see how things are going. <laughs> yeah, I, I, 
Uh, I'm I'm hoping things continue to go well. They they've been going well. I'm trying to to hold it all together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Good good luck with that. And thanks so much. Thank you. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.